in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Go ye therefore into all the world and preach the gospel. Welcome to Light of the Southwest. I'm Amy Cooper, and I have a brand new guest for you today, new to GLC, and one that we are so excited to have. <laughs> I want to introduce you, you to Lynn Jackson. She mm-hmm. is the great great granddaughter. That's right. Too. Of Dred Scott, Dred and Harriet Scott. Yeah. Many people have heard about Dred Scott, but they don't know why they've heard of him. <laughs> And that's really what we're going to be um, yeah. getting into in, in your life. She's actually here because she's been recording with Dr. Melvin Johnson for the Isaiah Project. Mm-hmm. And, oh, Lynn, it is so great. <laughs> it is what? so great to have you here. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. I love it because I'm west of the Mississippi, too. That's that's a rare treat. (laughs) Yeah, we're always on the east side of the river, but thank you for having me. So you have the Dred Scott Foundation. Dred Scott Heritage Foundation. When did you start that? Oh, that was in 2006. So not that long ago. No, not at all. Not at all. The 150th anniversary of the Dred Scott decision was on the horizon for 2007. And I had been um, thinking about it with some people at the old courthouse, people who I knew, and they were saying, oh, it's coming, it's coming, you've got to get started. And then it was 2003. And they asked my dad about it, and he says, oh, I think you need to talk to my daughter. I said, well, it's 2003. We have about four years to go on this. I think, I think we've got time. And so we waited, but then it was time. <laughs> I mean, I have a very busy life, so I had a lot of things going on. I didn't need four years to plan an event. But time came, and in 2005, we got together a group of um, organizations, law firms, museums, whoever was interested in helping us commemorate that in 2007. And for the whole year of 2006, we met monthly under the umbrella of the Dred Scott Heritage Foundation to plan that anniversary year. So whatever gift or focus an organization had that's what they contributed and it turned out phenomenal we had over 40 organizations and really closer to 60 when it was all said and done who actually did something between march of 2007 and march of 2008 to bring dred scott's story to the forefront and if it was a newspaper or a magazine they did articles or cover pages and if it was a museum they redid uh, an exhibit you know to highlight him more uh, organization like harvard university and washington U had multiple day symposiums and on and on it went but it was phenomenal um i'm gonna have you 
tell people a lot about the Dred Scott decision. It was a, a really, really bad <laughs> Supreme Court decision. Yeah. And that's why I know that not all Supreme Court decisions are good no. because of this mm-hmm. one. The one thing, though, that was good about that decision, because there was something, <laughs> is that it pushed us more towards the Civil War. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so many people don't know the truth about so many of the founding fathers that they wanted slavery mm-hmm. abolished. And mm-hmm. they were working mm-hmm. hard for it. That's, That's true. It's what they wanted. That's true. And people who can't seem to get past the, the racial division on your side very much they'll look at it like well all white people are bad mm-hmm. look what they did to us mm-hmm. but I like to point out that not all white people are bad because it was actually white people that fought the war that ended slavery mm-hmm. in America mm-hmm. not right. all white people are bad of course not no 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 bad is about the heart That's not, right. the, not the color of skin and as you said um the founding fathers fought hard to come up with the right way to do everything. But it's with anything else, people end up having to compromise. Mm-hmm. And so they intended for slavery to be abolished by 1808. Mm-hmm. In England it was, but it wasn't here, although the slave trade was abolished. That just meant you couldn't continue to bring slaves over, but you could continue to have them here. And so, um, even Jefferson, I'm sorry, I work with him too. Thomas Jefferson, when he wrote the Declaration of Independence, there are multiple drafts of what he wanted to be said. But because of the back and forth and disagreement of constitutional conflict, they did not agree on everything. And they threw out a lot of the heavy-weighted things that he wanted to say. And it is a complex topic though because here you have someone talking about the king of England and how you know this is he's perpetuating slavery and I have slaves so people have a problem with that but the real issue is that we don't really take the time to to really learn it's like reading the headlines Mm-hmm. And not reading the stories. and Which it can be very dangerous because, I mean, you know really, what? in today's media, I will scroll, scroll through the online headlines mm-hmm. and I'm mm-hmm. like, oh my gosh. Yeah, right. <laughs> even the headlines are so twisted. Yeah, well, headlines are meant to grab your attention. Mm-hmm. And then when you get into the story, then they clean it up, maybe. You maybe. Know, sometimes. But, um, but everybody should have their own personal responsibility to get to the truth. And we can't do that either being one-sided or being ignorant or not having the facts. And history is fascinating. You know, most people, when you talk to a grown person in the 30s and 40s, they'll say, you know, I really didn't like history when I was in school, but now I think it's kind of interesting. And what is there about being a teenager that history is not interesting? Maybe it's the way it was taught. Uh, yeah. But it's fascinating beyond measure. Mm-hmm. And part of what I've done when I started my research personally in 1995 on Dred Scott, I had no clue of all the other people and things I was going to learn about that, of course, was not taught in the schools. So I just made a personal mission and I started collecting three ring binders to keep all the stuff in that I was learning. And 
And God was preparing you. Well, absolutely. You know, he knew I was going to do this. But back then, I had no clue. And uh, yeah, it, it certainly has proved to be very helpful because there are things that I know I have in my research that I have not even talked about yet because there's just so much of it. And usually, you have to spend your time on the story itself. So I'm working on a way to get some of that out. And most of it's just really fascinating information. It's not like good or bad, but it's it's really wow we didn't know and so see that's the kind of stuff that makes me so mad though mm -hmm. so so many things that we don't know mm -hmm. why don't we know right. because they're not teaching us and you're absolutely right people need to search for the truth mm -hmm. because it's only truth that sets you free right yeah, That's for sure. It. it is. And, you know, as we continue to talk, we'll be talking about people and and the truth behind um, things that maybe people thought were one way or another. Mm -hmm. But once you get that truth, it can transform your mind. And when your mind is transformed, then your heart can be transformed. Mm -hmm. And that's the formula that we're supposed to be using, you know. Exactly. It has to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You renew your mind with truth and facts. So... So can you tell everybody what the Dred Scott decision was for people out there who think that they've probably heard of it, but they can't quite remember? I talk to people like that all the time. Everywhere I go, yeah, Dred Scott. Uh, isn't he that guy who, uh, um, and I know, I've, I've heard it, it's across the board. It's, mm -hmm. it's in law firms, even though every lawyer has to study the Dred Scott case in order to get through law school. But again, if the emphasis wasn't put on it and it really wasn't taught, then you're not going to know. Mm -hmm. And sadly, you know, almost all of African-American history was not taught. You mm -hmm. know, some people want to say suppressed. Obviously, if you're not teaching it, you're suppressing it. But who is they? They is the system. They is whoever, whatever. But we're not there now. There's no excuse for anybody to not be able to pick up a book or their cell phone and find out almost anything you want to know. Mm-hmm. And it's out there. And my only concern is that we not rewrite history and put that in front of people. So a lot of times you'll hear historians talk about source documents. Mm -hmm. And source documents are those original things that were written or said or recorded or whatever era you're in that tell the truth of what really happened. And part of how I, why I can tell the Dred Scott story is because uh, the research that I did, going to sources like National Park Service, universities, Library of Congress, museums, and getting the original information. I was very blessed. Uh, one time I got a notebook from a gentleman. He was an attorney. And in that notebook were letters that he copied from the Library of Congress that tell the explicit, exact way that Dred Scott got his freedom. Wow. Yeah. So I'm able with confidence when I get to that part of the story to tell people this is what happened. But nobody was really even saying a whole lot about it before then except the, the headline by words. You know. But now we can find out really what happened. And it's a lot more fun that way. It's very fascinating. What's it so, like to be the great granddaughter? And mm. that was when I first heard of your existence because I never even thought about it. That was my question. What is it like to be the great-granddaughter? Mm -hmm. and, and even more so, what's it like to be the great-granddaughter 
of someone who is what was done is so important in our history and people aren't even sure about it what's that like that would make me insane well you know I, I've always been kind of a calm person and not overly emotional um, I get happy and I can really get angry but for the most part I'm pretty calm so I like like I said earlier to see what are the facts what what is the truth of the matter and the truth of the matter is people are ignorant of a lot of things. So I'm gonna hold it against people for what they don't know. And I think that has helped me a little mm -hmm. bit because I've heard the craziest comments. I've heard everything from Dred Scott was a lawyer. People don't know that till he didn't matter till I'm royalty. Uh, it's kind of like all over the all map. All over the map. Yeah, all over the map wow. what people think or what they say. And yet, in the end, most of them just don't know. But on the other hand, to be fair, if you were to pick somebody else in history, like let's just say um, John Brown, a lot of people may not know a lot about John Brown either and, and probably don't, you know. But his story connects to our story. And yet, I'm not going to be upset because somebody doesn't know. Now, the issue that you asked me is that I'm a descendant, so how do I feel? Well, I feel compassion for the fact that we're pretty unlearned in some areas. And better than be angry, I think we need to just get busy and start learning. Mm -hmm. So that's part of why I do what I do. And the story is fascinating. It's very deep. It's involved. It's actually a very complicated story. I don't often get to tell a lot of intricacies that are there, but... In the time I usually have, I can get the main story out. And what's good about it is the way that people receive it. I want some of the intricate details. <laughs> I do. I want you to share. Well, I'll tell you as much as I can. Well, we've got a lot of time. Apparently. <laughs> we okay. can record all night long if we need to. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay, so back to your question. Um, and you ask about the decision. Well, you can let's, build up to the lead decision up to if the you decision. want, right, which is smart. That. Yeah, because, you know, ultimately it's like, you know, people think he's from California. You know, they, they just don't, they think he was born in maybe in St. Louis, uh, but he was born in Virginia about 1799 or 1805, but nobody's really sure. And he was born, we believe, to the family of Peter Blow. That would be his owner, Peter Blow, and his wife, Elizabeth. And Elizabeth had 11 children. And Dred Scott grew up with some of those kids around the same age. Uh, the 11 children play a very pivotal role in this story, actually. But not all of them, but some of them. But the children of the Blow family are very important to this story. Um, so having been born there, um, we never knew who his parents were. Never. And I always figured, well, you know, we're fortunate to get back as far as he is, so I, we just won't know. But I met a descendant of the Blow family who actually had all the genealogy of the Blow family back to the 1600s. And also all of the names of the slaves that were inherited by children of successive generations of that family. Wow. And I do have that. Wow. So that was pretty fascinating. 
But in those documents come some names that this gentleman, whose name is Jeff, he lives in California, and he believes that it's possible that a lady named Hannah and a gentleman named Solomon are most likely his parents. Also, the names of brothers. Right, yeah. So, that was another layer yeah. on this story that we did not have. And the reason it's like not 100,000% is because nobody has a document that says that those are his parents and nobody wrote mm -hmm. anything or nobody made reference to my mother, Hannah, etc. But mm -hmm. when you analyze the dates of their births, the alleged parents, and the dates of the brothers, it all fits together like a family. And as they moved at one point, that family moved too. And then there's a story that perhaps Dred Scott had a brother who may have died in Alabama because the family moved from Virginia to Alabama. He took all his family and his slaves. And right now I think it's kind of like my next puzzle because people are saying Dred Scott is buried in Alabama, but he clearly is not. However, intricacies I talked about, if one of his brother's names was Dredd, he could have had a brother who was buried there named Dredd. Mm -hmm. And whether his last name would be Scott or not, I'm not sure, because technically their last name should be Blow. Mm -hmm. But Elizabeth Blow was Elizabeth Scott. Maybe she owned that slave before she got married. And her family had an Ethaldred, or it looks like Ethaldred, and I hate that. <laughs> it just sounds bad, but Ethaldred. And so maybe Dred came from her ancestors. Mm -hmm. I think we all know that slaves pick up the names of their owners, and, or they're given those names, I should say. So that's a little intricate, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You want another twist? Mm -hmm. Dred Scott was known as Sam Blow growing up. So if he was Sam Blow and had a brother named Dredd, and if his brother Dredd died, it was not unlike someone to take the name of their deceased loved one. Wow. That's a possibility. But I have articles that refer to him as Sam Blow. So, how do you like that? Wow. <laughs> yeah. Very you interesting. You weren't expecting that, were you? No. <laughs> Not at all. So, the early years are a little fuzzy, but there's enough there. So, one of the things I need to do is go to Alabama and check out the site. It, there's a cemetery there near Oakville College or University, I think it's college. And that's where the grave should be of someone in that family. Mm -hmm. Possibly, mm -hmm. yeah. So, that's the background on the family. However, all of them eventually came to St. Louis. And Dred Scott, by that time, would have been about 30 years old. We're rounding out that out. That would have been about 1830. And when he got here, um, you know, the family had tried different businesses, and that's why they moved from Virginia to Alabama and stayed there about 18 years. But then um, things just didn't work out so well. And then when they got to St. Louis, the husband, uh, Peter Blow, his wife became ill, and she died. Now, he has 
many children, several of whom though did pass away. Um, what's he going to do? He gets ill himself. And now he's thinking about the debt that he may have and wants to cure it. In order to do that, he's thinking about what he can sell before he dies. And in order to do that, he looks to his slaves. Mm -hmm. And uh, the one that we're concerned about that we know he sold was Dred Scott. And he sold him to an army surgeon whose name was Dr. John Emerson. Now, Peter Blow, we believe, sold him before he died. Some people think that he was sold after he died. But one of his sons, Henry, testified in court that his father sold him. So I'm going with that. Makes most sense to me. I think he was an honorable enough man to want to do what he needed to do for his family, as he seemed to have tried to do the whole time. But um, Dred Scott, having been with them for 30 years, it was, it was difficult. Um, on the one hand, he was a slave. On the other hand, they treated him more fairly than you might think a slave might have been treated. But clearly he was enslaved, and that is the issue. So when he was sold to Dr. Emerson, Dr. Emerson, being an army surgeon, was moved around a lot. Mm -hmm. And he went to Fort Armstrong, which was near Chicago. It doesn't exist anymore. And he also went to Fort Snelling, which was in what they called the Wisconsin Territories, but it's the St. Paul, Minneapolis area in Minnesota right now. Fort Snelling is still there. It's uh, going to be almost 200 years old, yeah. I believe, in 2020. And they are, as you might imagine, you know, revamping how they share their history. Their history is very intricate. Um, there was a native population there. There was Chinese population. There was African-American. Um, a lot of interesting stories come out of Fort Snelling. But when he went there with him, he was in free territory. Free territory. Yes, both forts. And that is really important to the story. It's critical and pivotal. Mm -hmm. uh, Dred traveled a lot. Um, Jeff, the same guy who gave me the genealogy information on the Blow family, he says that it's likely that Dred might be the most traveled slave that we know of and that he may have traveled over 2,000 miles. Wow. It's, it's, it's true, you know, that he came from Virginia to St. Louis, but he also was in Louisiana. He was here in Texas. It's very possible that he was in Mexico for a short moment. He was in Minnesota. He was in Iowa and traveling through. We know he was in Tennessee. So he got around. Mm. And some of that was what may have contributed to what some have written about him is that he, he seemed wise. So when you travel, you learn things, you know. Being a slave, you keep it to yourself for the most part. He never could read or write, but he was mentioned as being someone who at least was wise, and I think we can say some more about that later. But there he was with Dr. Emerson in Fort Snelling in free territory. Now, free territory means you're not supposed to have slaves, right? That's right. They set it up that way on purpose. They did. Because they didn't want slavery expanding, correct? Correct. 
That's right. And so that was what the Northwest Ordinance was about in 1787, that there would be no slavery in the new territories. Another important point to it's remember. It's not rocket science. <laughs> yeah, that'll come back to haunt us. Uh, but in the meantime, there they were. So he's doing his duties. Um, I found out from visiting up there, which I was so excited to finally go because I never knew if I would ever get to Fort Snelling. And I found out that his living quarters are still there and pretty much intact. Obviously, the little furniture has been you know, replicated, but his space and his domain is still there. Now, slaves in the fort would live under their masters. And so he lived under Dr. Emerson's quarters. And if you go there, you'll see that if you come in on one level, you walk into the room, which was the home of Dred Scott. And if you go in on the top level, then you'll walk into Dr. Emerson's. And at the time, there was a stairwell, which meant that if he needed him, he could come up those steps. That stairway isn't there right now. They sealed it off. But those are the places where they lived. And uh, it was very fascinating to get a chance to go there and see it. While he was there, he met a young lady named Harriet Robinson. I believe she was already there, but she was a young lady. And uh, over a short period of time, I do believe they apparently decided that they should be together. I'm sure they fell in love. And they actually had a wedding. They had a marriage ceremony. They didn't just jump the broom. And it was illegal. Of course, if you're in free territory, you're not a What's slave. Il that's right. What's illegal if you're in free territory? Right. How does that make any sense? So that whole story right there is a little funny and a little intricate. Um, I'm still studying that. Um, there's other people who have written about life in the Northwest and life at the forts and all of that. So we've gleaned some information from there. But more than that, her owner was a justice of the peace and an Indian agent, Major Tolliver, Lawrence Tolliver. And he gave permission and Dr. Emerson gave permission and they had that wedding ceremony, and her owner, <laughs> he did the ceremony. Wow. Mm -hmm. He also either gave or sold her to Dr. Emerson so she could live in those quarters with her husband, and that's the way it went. So that was kind of a nice thing. However, it was cold up there, and going to Minnesota is always a nice thing for me, but I got to wear it like, two coats. Got at the airport told me my coat's going to need a coat, you know, and when you're out in that fort, the wind is howling. It is very cold. I don't know how they survived it, but I do know there's a story that one cold evening, um, keep in mind that Dredd and Harriet lived under Dr. Emerson, so they're down low. Heat rises, so it's probably just bitterly, unbearably like cold. Basement. Yeah, at least. Now, in the room, there is a huge fireplace, but, you know, it's a fireplace. It's not central air and central heat. But the story goes that um, Dr. Emerson got in a fight with another officer because he was requesting a heater or something else to help heat their room, and it was denied him. To heat Dredd and Harriet's room? Yes. So he wasn't that bad. Now he Not so much so. I don't have any real stories of him being mean or cruel to him. In fact, I'm working on a story that's also got a positive slant to it, but it's going to take a little bit of work, but I'm, you know, we're well into 
thinking that we have an idea about something between Dredd and him that might have transpired, but it didn't get a chance to. So the mere fact though, that he would go to blows with the fellow officer because he couldn't get a hear for them speaks volumes. Yeah. And yet um, I like to say that Dredd and Harriet throughout the course of their lives, the things that people did for them, I think speaks to their character and the kind of people they must have been. Mm -hmm. Would you do that for somebody that was a rascal or, you know, somebody that was mean and nasty and it's like, you know, sit down there and be cold, <laughs> you know? The other thing is not knowing the date that this happened, it could be possibly that maybe Harriet was pregnant too mm. because they did have a daughter somewhere in these travels. Uh, the daughter was born in 1838. They were married in 1836. And so it's very possible that she might have been pregnant and that would have been another reason the doctor was insistent on trying to get help for her. But that's just a, another story, you know, that goes along with it. However, um, in their travels, sometimes Dredd and Harriet were left alone. The doctor would have to go away. Sometimes he would take them with him. And he took them with him when he went to Louisiana. And he met a young lady named Irene Emerson, whose father was John Emerson here in St. Louis. I'm sorry. I said that wrong. John Sanford, Irene Sanford, and John Sanford was her father. Her father was a pro-slavery uh, society member, founding member, and so very much into the slavery uh, economy, as well as friends with the Chateau family and the Cleed families. All of these people in St. Louis were very prominent in the founding of the city, and uh, slavery, of course, was very important to them. So he marries this young lady, and she's a bit of a socialite. On the way back to Minnesota, Harriet has her baby on a riverboat called the Gypsy. So think about having a baby on a riverboat. And I don't really know the month that this baby was born, but I'm thinking she might have been born in September. Um, you've got all kinds of people on a riverboat. You're a slave woman, nobody really cares. Are you down below? Or wh where does this happen? How, who helps you? You know, mm -hmm. it's interesting. I don't have any details on that, but it is clear record in the courts that this is where and when the child was born. So they went back to Minnesota. So you get from Louisiana, hot, hot, back to cold, cold. Then eventually they come back to St. Louis. They get to St. Louis, and shortly thereafter, Dr. Emerson passes away. Now they belong to his widow, Irene Emerson. Lovely lady, but not much interested in her slaves and not much interested in being a widow. And so she stays around for a while. But before she leaves, and I don't know if they knew she was leaving or not, but Dredd and Harriet knew that without Dr. Emerson there, they didn't know what was gonna to happen to them as a family. They knew they'd been in free territory. They knew they were free. And one of the things I've started to tell people is they weren't necessarily saying that they want to be free. They were saying that they were free. Once free, always free. Mm -hmm. was the law that Missouri had. If you went into free territory and resided there for a period of time, you were free. 
It's kind of like um, common law marriage. Yeah. You might not want to get married, but you know what? If you live together for more than a year here in Texas yeah. and you represent the people that you're married. Is it one year? It's it used a to year. be seven. Uh-huh. Oh, my goodness. Okay, well, yeah. Wow. It used if to be seven If years. you're representing two people that you are married. Wow. So, you know, here they were in free territory in Wisconsin. In the northwest in the territory. Minnesota, actually. Right. It was Wisconsin Territories, mm-hmm. Minnesota State now. So they've been in free territory for, oh, for a, a long, long time. time. Yeah. yeah, long time. I, I can't imagine how their heart sank when Mr. Emerson died. Yeah, me too. Especially the trail that I'm on. <laughs> because I think it was always intended that, you know, he might give them their freedom. That's where I'm coming from. But he didn't get a chance to do that. Do you know how he died? Was it expected? All exactly. He got ill, but you know, <laughs> he was. If you read it a certain way, you could say he was a bit of a con- hypochondriac. On the other hand, he may have had some real illnesses, I believe. But he was always saying to the army, "Oh, I need to move. It's too cold. I want to go to Florida. Oh, it's too hot. I want to come back, or something like that." So they really got sick of him, actually, and kind of booted him out, more or less. <laughs> Honestly, that's kind of what happened to him. So I don't know what he really died of. I don't recall. I'm sure I knew, but but I don't know today. But you know, he died. So, so widow Emerson is approached by the Dred Scott family who has been thoroughly now educated on how to do this because St. Louis had free blacks and slave blacks. They had friends that were both. They came from Fort Snelling where a young lady came to St. Louis under the same law and got her freedom. But also they went to a church, Second African Baptist Church, which in St. Louis now is Central Baptist. And that pastor worked with an abolitionist, Elijah P. Lovejoy, whose printing press was burned, his home was burned, his printing press was thrown in the river, and he was murdered for printing anti-slavery literature in his newspaper. And Reverend Anderson was an assistant to him, and he had moved to Alton to try to avoid this, but the mobs in Alton killed him. So Reverend Anderson came back to St. Louis, and he became pastor of this church, which Harriet and Dred attended. And we know that Harriet's names are on the roll there, they're very proud to tell that. But um, they attended that church. They had the support of that pastor who knew a lot about how things worked. And so between several options, they knew that they could sue in court because they had specific grounds. You can't just want to go in and say, I'm going to sue you because I want to be free. You have to have something like a will that was promised to you that when the master died, you would be free. Mm-hmm. Or in their case, the law simply said. And they could easily verify that they had been in free territory for several years. Mm-hmm. So they first asked Miss Emerson, can we have our freedom? You were there. You know we were in free territory. Let's just do this. And she said, no. And then they said, well, plan B. <laughs> I'm always a plan B person. We will offer you $300 you know, and further securities if he would let us buy our freedom, to which she also said no. So plan C was to sue for freedom. And one thing that has come to light just recently, last decade or so, is that there have been people who have sued for their freedom, African-Americans back in that St. Louis in that time, and 
maybe half of them got their freedom based on sincere grounds. But um, these freedom suits were lost to, um, to us in a box in a basement of a courthouse that is no longer the courthouse in St. Louis. It's a courthouse, but not the courthouse. And so when these uh, were discovered, Dred Scott's papers were in there and freedom suits were in there. And so we have Dred Scott's original papers where he wow. signed for his freedom. We have several of those, and I've seen them several times. Wow. So, um, yeah, that, that was a nice discovery. But, um, but people who sued for their freedom had a 50-50 chance at best. But Dred and Harriet had like a 100%. It should have been a, a shoe-in. It, it could have been. So the Blow family children that we talked about, they helped him because, as you were saying earlier, not all white people are bad. And without the help and support of people like them and other abolitionists, you know, very little might have been accomplished because uh, the establishment was not hearing about no slavery. Mm -hmm. And yet the Blow family children, who never owned slaves themselves, and their spouses and friends of theirs who might have been attorneys or new attorneys, rallied behind Dred and Harriet to say, well, yeah, you should be free. We're going to help you. So they were able to secure attorneys to help them go to the courthouse on April 6th of 1846, and they filed petitions to free. They had the grounds. They were granted that. And yet um, when they went to trial a year later, in June of 1847, probably thinking that they may come out free, they came out with the mistrial. And the mistrial was because when the attorney asked a gentleman who owns the slaves, they needed to establish that she, Ms. Emerson, was the owner. He said, my wife says that she owns them. And that's hearsay. Because mm -hmm. he didn't say he knew, he said she said so. And that was the end of it. But fortunately, the judge was of the nature of granting them a retrial. However, it took two more years for that trial to come about. And so now we're in 1849. And we started out in 1846 in March. So I often think, what were they doing for three years when still being owned by Mrs. Emerson, but her not having much interest, being hired out, being told to go find work and bring the money back, um, it, it had to be pretty harrowing to wonder how long is this going to take. But in St. Louis, we had a great fire and we also had a cholera epidemic. And, you know, we didn't have the technology we have today. The dockets were full. You know, people would probably just say, oh, I'm going home today and go home. But they weren't able to have their case heard until 49. Now, the second trial, they actually got their freedom. And most people don't know that. So when people look at the old courthouse, and, and some people do, and they say, oh, that's where they sold slaves. You know, this, that, and the other, kind of like not liking it. It's also the place where Dred Scott got his freedom from a jury of 12 white men. They looked at the law. They looked at the case and the facts, and they said, yeah, they should be free. And so they were, but for a very short time. Because Mrs. Emerson and her pro-slavery father and friends 
uh, and probably with some pressure from them as well, said, no, we can't let that happen. So she went and appealed, but she appealed to have it thrown out. They would not throw it out. And I read recently, too, that they dread and his lawyers filed for damages, a lot of money. And maybe she might have dropped the case, but the damages was an issue. And so it didn't get dropped. And she had to face it. It ended up in the Missouri Supreme Court. Six years later, on March 6th, I'm sorry, March 22nd, which is my birthday, of 1852, the Missouri Supreme Court told them that times are not as they once were when we used to grant freedom on these grounds. And we don't think that um, we need to do this because people who are against slavery, you know, that's a seditious thing. I never understood that. And I mulled over it and mulled over it. And then it finally occurred to me that the sedition comes in when you don't want slavery. You're against the economics of our country. And if our economics fall, then our country falls. So if you want to take that stretch and call it a seditious act, I guess you can. But they use that as part of their arguments. They also made a statement that really resonates that said that they were not going to give them their freedom, but that they also were willing to accept the consequences of slavery within her borders. And they used the word limits, but it meant borders. So no matter what, this is our ruling. And whatever happens, happens. We're not changing our mind about it. Wow. And so I'll leave that there for now. But that's like an edict. And some people might look at it as other things, you know. But it was a proclamation made over their own state at that time. Now, when Dred Scott started in 1846, there were two anti-slavery judges and one pro-slavery. By the time, six years later, his case got to the court, there were now two pro-slavery judges and one anti-slavery judge. And so that was among the dynamics, but also the sectionalism and the, the argument, the debate about slavery was continuing to escalate over these six years as well, which is why they said times are not as they once were. Mm -hmm. And so they slammed the door, if you will, shut the book, the story is over. And it should have been. Except. Except. <laughs> there was a lawyer that lived down the street from the old courthouse, whose name was Roswell Field. And Roswell is um, the father, was the father of Eugene Field, the child poet, children's poet. And older people will remember his name. He wrote a lot of famous children's poems. And the house actually was preserved primarily because Eugene Field was a famous poet. And I'm sure at the time they were not thinking about his father being Dred Scott's lawyer. But it's flipped. Most people <laughs> don't know who Eugene Field is, and now people are more aware of his father being the attorney who turned this case around. I'm sure he felt that this was an unfair situation, and Dred Scott actually worked for him as a janitor in his law firm. Now, they say his law firm, and I'm not sure where that is, but he has a study in his house, and it's preserved as a museum, the home is. And I often thought that maybe that was his 
law firm office. I'm not sure, but Dred Scott certainly was in his home. And he felt that if they could apply the diversity clause, then they could bring this case back to court. And the diversity clause says if you sue someone in one state and you're in another state, it now goes to the federal level. And that was the key. Except when it went to the federal level, it <laughs> got even worse. Well, it did eventually, you know, yeah. I, you know, I'm just <laughs> so um, overwhelmed by the yes and no and back and forth and, and how mm -hmm. devastating mm -hmm. that would be right. to be told, yeah, you're free. Yeah. No, you're not free. You're mm -hmm. a slave again. Yeah. It's like, You what? know, it's funny you would say that because we have a book um, that was written by uh, Mark Shirtliff, who was the Attorney General of Utah. And Mark had such a passion for the story and the man, Dred mm -hmm. Scott. He traveled all over to the places where he knew he ever lived just to feel that space where he was mm -hmm. and to write a novel. And he called it, Am I Not a Man? And he is not he was not a writer i think this is the first book he ever wrote it's about 500 pages it is riveting you cannot I put it read down it. it is a novel of beautiful beautiful writing and what you were saying he does an exceptional job of sharing in this novel it's pretty much based on facts mostly all facts but you know a little here and there but just you know Dred and Harriet sitting at the table trying to figure out what's happening to us. You know, how, what did that mean? How come you said, and all of that, you're right, that they experienced that. But in, in this book that Mark wrote, it, it really is a wonderful way to try to get into the moment that they were in and feel the anguish and the confusion and despair. <laughs> Can you imagine being told that you're free and then, no. oh, but not quite yet? No, mm -hmm. I can't imagine that. But then I think about the the children of his original owners mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. who came to his rescue. Yeah, they were they were amazing. And you know, I'm gonna continue to and, talk about and, them because there's more. And the kind more. of hope that that would have given him. Oh, absolutely. You it know, did. it's like yeah. wow. Yeah. Oh, why do you hear the end of the story? Because they they really were there. They really were there. So. Um, so Roswell Field is taking this now to the federal level. And he says, um, I'm sure at that point, they probably said, let's just see how this goes. And, and if, they don't, if they lose round one, then maybe now they're interested in seeing what the Supreme Court would say. You know, there are people who have said in the past that, oh, he was only a puppet, he was just a pawn, they were just using him, they were trying to decide this, that, and the other. When he filed his case, there was nobody thinking about him or any of that. He just wanted to free his family. Mm -hmm. And I applaud him and Harriet because, as I mentioned on Pastor Johnson's show, Harriet filed her own suit. She was on a separate case. There were two cases going through the court when they started out because she had the exact same grounds that he had. Mm -hmm. Plus, she was the mother, and so goes the mother, so goes the child. That's right. What if Dredd had lost his case? But for some quirky reason, she would have won. The girls would have their freedom, and so would she. 
He would not have, but I think he would have been quite content to know that his girls, all three of them, mm -hmm. were now safe and free. But that strategy, I thought, was pretty, pretty sound on their part to go ahead and, and do it that way. And the reason you don't hear about her is because over a period of time, it got to be difficult to find enough attorneys. It became expensive to try to have two cases. And it was decided that, and I do believe by the courts, but it was decided that they would be combined. I'm sure the courts decided yes, that. Yes, So it could have been the Dred and Harriet Scott case, or it could have just been the Harriet Scott case, but it became known as the Dred Scott case. But it definitely included Harriet. Her future, and her verdict was wrapped up in his. So she very much is very much a part of the story. And as you were speaking, too, I'll just share this now so we don't forget it, but the dismay, the despair, the discouragement, trying to keep yourself up, you know, trying mm -hmm. to be there for the girls. At some point, probably here toward the, the latter years, they hid those two girls away. Really? For their safety's sake, they did. Nobody knows where. And it's my next life's mission to find out, but it has been suggested by the Blow family that maybe they hid them away. They don't know, but they wonder. Did their so they were hid away never to be found? No one ever... Well, the parents knew where they hid the girls, and... They said they could call them back at a moment's notice, mm -hmm. but they were not to be found so that the lady down the street could buy them and sell them right. down south or wherever. Mm -hmm. So again, parental strategies to save the family at a sacrifice mm -hmm. of hiding them away, and that's what they did. So anyway, you're getting a lot of nuances. You wanted them, but mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot more story um, so where are we? What would, what would be the repercussions to Dred and Harriet for hiding their girls away? You know, that's very interesting, but there weren't any <laughs> because, um, the owner was now Irene Emerson, mm -hmm. but she had left St. Louis. She wanted a husband, so she went she out went, east to find a new husband. husband. Okay. And Dred and Harriet were under the jurisdiction of the local sheriff, Sheriff LeBaum. And Sheriff LeBaum was pretty much like more in their corner than not. As they did work and earned wages, they had to turn them in. And whoever won this big dog in the end would get the money. So she had left them, money was handled, she's gone. But one thing I didn't say was that when they went to the federal level, because she was gone, she left her affairs to her brother who, who lived in New York. And that's why they were able to do it because brother John did not live in St. Louis or Missouri. And uh, so that is how okay. they were able to use the diversity clause. I think we skipped that, I'm sorry. Yeah. But nonetheless, um, that's why it's Dred Scott versus John Sanford instead of Irene Emerson. Okay, that okay. makes sense. Yeah, that's it. So while she's gone, they're hiring themselves out and really probably in some instances are kind of on their own. Mm -hmm. They are sort of on their own, but they're not free and they can't just do anything, but she's not there. And that was kind of a good thing. So without her <laughs> and the people who were around him, you know, a little more sympathetic to his cause, hiding the girls is like they looked the other way. 
Who was going to miss them? They weren't really of an age much to work, not much. Mm -hmm. The oldest was 11 at the time of the Dred Scott decision. So she's like 8, 9, 10, and 11 as we're going forward. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that, I think that's how they did it. But again, nobody knows where. But that's just important because they sacrificed the dividing of their family to save their family mm -hmm. with the hopes of coming back together again. Mm -hmm. All right, so Roswell's going to divide gonna, your family on a temporary basis. Oh, yeah. For, so that hopefully it's not going to be a permanent thing later. Right, exactly. And it's a chance you take, it's a risk you take. There were a lot of risks, you know. Um, so much bearing on them. Yeah. Incredible. Well, not only that, though, once the case went to the federal level, then it became uh, of interest on a national level. Mm -hmm. And the case bears his name, so his name's being called. He, I'm thinking he's walking down Broadway or Market Street, and he hears a conversation, you know, that Dred Scott case up in D.C., and that's his name, and that's him. And they probably are starting to notice that it's him, you know? That'd be scary. And well, he's, yeah. living, he's living in a place, in mm -hmm. a time where you have, right. I'm sorry, very violent and vile people mm -hmm. who are so pro-slavery right. that if they need to kill you or they need to teach you a lesson, they just then they would. Mm -hmm. so be it. Right, right. So that's why I point out that Man. this took a lot of courage. Yeah, you know, it, did. It, it absolutely did. Because if with that going on, mm -hmm. then you have other slaves that are going, that's right. If he wins. Yeah. Right. But you also had a few that said, I wish he wouldn't do that because if he loses. It's a lot of trouble. So he was in the middle. Mm -hmm. Again, to your mm -hmm. point, you know, it was just dangerous. But yet there's no indication that they drew back and hid away. You know, they still worked. Now, there were times when they worked out at Jefferson Barracks, which is not anywhere near the city. Um, they were hired out there. In fact, the second daughter was born in Jefferson Barracks. But... For the most part, they were there, involved. So I want to move this on, though, because I, I guess our first hour will be up pretty soon. But um, the case went to the U.S. Supreme Court after between 52 and 57. <sighs> and they had originally filed in 46, right? Yes. It took five court proceedings in 11 years. And at the 11th year... It went to the Supreme Court. But let me say this in the meantime. Dredd and Harriet um, were technically still owned by Mrs. Emerson. But she left to find a husband, and she did marry a gentleman, Dr. Calvin Chapey, who was an abolitionist. And she did not tell him that she owned these famous slaves. He found out by reading in a newspaper he found out. So when I mentioned that notebook of letters from the Library of Congress, it's the letters between the attorney Roswell Field, Calvin Chafee, and attorney Montgomery Blair, who accepted the request to argue the case for the Supreme Court. And between the three of them, they had a little conversation in writing. And those documents I have at my home. So... I'm dancing around a little bit because I want to be sure you get it all in. But ultimately, on uh, March 
the 6th of 1857, the U.S. Supreme Court said that not only um, were they not going to be granted their freedom, but that they weren't citizens and they had no right to even be in court and essentially threw it out. And that is not what they went up there for. They did not go up there on a citizenship question. They went up there on the question that the lower courts had brought. And yet that was their way of undoing not only that case, but the argument for abolishing slavery, that African-Americans were not citizens. And so it was decreed by Chief Justice Roger Butani that African-Americans and Africans of that descent had no rights that whites were bound to respect and that they were beings of an inferior order, so far inferior that they had no right to even associate with the white race. They went further to uh, declare that the 1787 compromise we talked about, um, I'm sorry, ordinance that said you had, couldn't have slavery in the territories, that that as well as the Missouri Compromise were both unconstitutional. Congress had no right to implement those laws in 18... 20 and 1787. Talk so now in 1857, Supreme, Supreme Court judges going out of out of bounds out of on bounds. what they're allowed to do. Yeah, that's right. So when you think back on why the nation went into a tailspin and an uproar, literally that's what it was. And um, they didn't have television back then, but you can imagine what would have been on the news had they had the same environment that we have today, where you can broadcast the news like that. Yeah, well, as you're explaining the different things that the Supreme Court decided that they needed to rule on there, it's no wonder mm -hmm. that the Dred Scott decision pushed America towards the, the brink of war, the Civil War. That's right. It's like, wow, <laughs> wow, something yeah. that had had been decided by Congress mm -hmm. so many decades before. That's right. They just threw it the, out. We're going to throw that out because they were wrong. See, this is why it's really important, Lynn, that people know their history mm -hmm. and yeah. they know the Constitution <laughs> and they know the separation mm -hmm. of the government branches right, right, yeah. and why they are like that. Okay, don't you go away. As you can tell, Lynn and I have a <laughs> lot more to share with you. So we'll see you right after the break. Okay, we're back. I'm with Lynn Jackson with the Dred Scott Heritage Foundation. And she has just finished describing for us the decision that was made by the Supreme Court of the United that States. enraged the nation. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, this is why people really need to know yeah. uh, their our history and the Constitution and the separation yeah. of the different branches of government. And why, Lynn, it is so important that mm -hmm. only judges who mm -hmm. are honoring the Constitution are in place. And it doesn't matter at what level they're on. You can't mm -hmm. have activist judges because that's what's what was going on there. That's true. And when you say know the Constitution, the judges actually hid behind the Fifth Amendment, mm. which was the Property Rights Amendment. Uh, 
So the way they were looking at it, well, he was the property of Mrs. Emerson. And therefore, she has a right to her property. So instead of looking at other amendments, they looked mm -hmm. at that one and declared. So this is why, you know, as I was growing up, I would hear people say they told him he wasn't human. They told him he wasn't a person. They said he was property, chattel. And those words sounded so unbelievable and hard to me. But I do know why that was said. Because when you literally interpret or interpolate, however you want to do, that's what you come up with. That is what you come up with. And so um, that, of course, had to be the most devastating blow. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there were other things going on behind the scenes. And one of the interesting aspects of this is that when they were about to announce the Dred Scott decision, they were also about to swear in a new president, President Buchanan. And Buchanan did something that we really wouldn't want to see done today. He went and talked to the Chief Justice about the case. Okay, let's not laugh. And it's not allowed. That's what you're saying. It's not allowed. No, it's not allowed. It's not allowed. No. That's right. And so it happened. And pretty much when Buchanan did his inaugural speech, he told the country. And we'll have the Dred Scott decision in a few days. And whatever the court comes up with, that's what we'll go along with. Knowing that they were going to rule for him to remain a slave. Mm -hmm. And once that's done, that, that locks it. So that was a little back scene Politicking. shenanigans that yeah. shouldn't have gone on. But and also, not just it, saying that... It, no, you're, you have to remain slaves because you're property. But allowing slavery in the new territories where, where it had already been established, mm -hmm. there was not to be slavery there. That's right. So who was this Buchanan guy? What a jerk. It didn't go so well as he thought. Instead of putting the fire out, they yeah. just flanned fan the flames as it were. There's some gas on that fire. Yeah, they did. And so we all know kind of the rest of the story there. But um, one point we brought out earlier, though, was that Abraham Lincoln was thinking about getting out of politics. And he made the decision after he heard Dred Scott that he would stay in. And so in some way, it's indirectly responsible for him being the president. And you had told us something yesterday that I didn't know. You want to share that? Yeah, I... I got it off of uh, one of the American Heritage uh, mm -hmm. specials that we have been running from Wall Builders, and that is that John Quincy Adams, the only president who, after he was president, served in the Congress for a really long time. Mm -hmm. He was an abolitionist, mm -hmm. and he had a plan. And he mm -hmm. had this guy uh, who had been elected to Congress, and he, he trained him, and he taught him everything and how this plan would work to do what to end slavery to end slavery mm -hmm. and then john quincy adams died this guy was never elected again until he became the president and that was mm -hmm. abraham lincoln mm -hmm. and he used 
all of the instructions that John Quincy Adams had taught him mm-hmm. to do it. Yeah, I did not know that until you told me, and that just gives me chills. I'm like, but you thank know what? God. I, I, nobody knows this, but I'm a big fan of John Quincy Adams. Mm-hmm. He is so underrated. Yep. And to be clear, he is the son of President John Adams. Right. So the father and the son were both presidents. Not the one that you see sparring with Thomas Jefferson, but his son. And also, another interesting footnote, the movie Amistad. Mm -hmm. So the actor, um, and I love him, but what's his name? Um, He played John Quincy Adams, and he defended the slaves, which allowed them to go back home. And um, the man's name is on the tip of my tongue, and I'm so sorry I can't call it, but everybody knows. And he played in Cannibal Lecter. Every, everybody can see it. <laughs> Hello, see audience. Face, it was so. Cannibal Lecter. <laughs> yeah, but he played John Quincy Adams, and he was that same person that you're talking about, and he helped free the slaves who rebelled on the Amistad. Mm-hmm. He was a fascinating person, very much so. So little tidbits on the side there, but very interesting because that's what makes history interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, um, well, I hope I remember to tell you this. There's another interesting connection between Dred Scott, Thomas Jefferson, and John Adams. But I have to say that till, <laughs> till the end of the story. Okay, I'll All try right. to remember to make sure yeah, you Yeah, let's it. try to okay. remember that. So, um, so here we now have the Dred Scott family being told that they, and, and none of their descendants, nor any of their race, will ever be citizens, nor will they ever be free in America. And so we have the Civil War, and we have Abraham Lincoln in part, thanks to the Dred Scott decision, and now I know John Quincy Adams. But also, we have the Dred Scott family, who are now in limbo. What's going to happen? So first and foremost, they're not going to get the money that they earned all those years because they didn't win the case. But Mrs. Emerson, who didn't tell her husband that she owned the slaves, did make one concession, but based on the fact that she would get her money, I don't know if she was in any position of really bargain, but she got her money, and that um, those letters that were being written between her husband, Dr. Chafee, Roswell Field, and Montgomery Blair, those letters were to effect a plan to get the Dred Scott family free because Dr. Chafee would have none of it. Because he was an abolitionist. He was an abolitionist. And the poor man, his reputation was destroyed in that moment because he also was a congressman, but he did not go back to Congress. He had a profession as a dentist, which is why he was Dr. Chafee. But he also wanted to maintain the truism of who he said he was. So I, I just can't even imagine how he felt. Oh, being I've married to this times. woman mm-hmm. who it's, you know, if he was an abolitionist, she had to present herself as someone who was against slavery or one he would, would not think. have wanted her. One would think. And yeah. for it to come out like that, mm-hmm. like, well, not, not only am I, not against slavery, I have slaves and... Not only do I have slaves, it's the slaves. It's <laughs> the. <laughs> the oh, slaves, yeah. It, it, it had to be difficult. I often say I wish I was a fly on the wall because I would love to have heard that conversation. Um, I'm sure he was furious. Oh, he had to be, you know. 
even even the best of men mm. you know this is not this wasn't a local joke this wasn't no something you could hide this was national and he he was ripped for it had repercussions for it yeah everyone in the nation that's right everyone and it was in all the papers across the nation you know i have a collection of things that i studied back early of what they call session era papers session era era papers it's a little hard to find those now but i do have my copies of printouts and it's what the newspapers printed the days right after the decision how the North was enraged, how the South was saying, well, now this is settled, we can get back to life as usual, and that wasn't going to happen. But it's very fascinating to read the words and, and to hear the fervor and, and the anger mm -hmm. and all of the emotions that were mm -hmm. in these articles. And there were quite a few of them, but they are available to a true researcher. You can find them. Um, so in the meantime, uh, Dred and Harriet are now apparently supposed to be slaves, but these letters are being written. And um, there was a plan that simply was this, that Dr. Chafee and his wife and her daughter, Henrietta Emerson, they had a daughter, that the three of them would effect a quitclaim deed. And the quitclaim deed would turn over the whole Dred Scott family to one Taylor Blow, the young, second to the youngest son of the original owner and for one dollar each he bought them and on may 26 of 1857 the new york times wrote that the dred scott family has been effectively freed by the chafees turned them over to the blows with the express purpose of freeing them wow that's essentially what it says just one paragraph probably one good sentence but with the express purpose of freeing them and that's exactly what he did. He went to our court and he purchased two $1,000 bonds. The children were covered under that. And he put his name, his life, his reputation, and everything on the line that he would not have to cure those bonds because Dredd and Harriet were known to be of good character and to have means to support themselves. They weren't shiftless, lazy, and not working. They were very hard workers. Harriet was a laundress. And I often say she was the first entrepreneur in the family once she got her freedom because she actually owned her own business. She was in the directory as a laundress. You could look her up and wow. hire her. that's cool. That's right. We have copies of that. And so uh, now, you know, they, of good character, were able to get freedom licenses, which all slaves had to carry if they were free. And they were able to go about their way as free people. I say quietly, while the nation was in just growing, yeah, yeah, bigger and bigger, they more quietly just became free. But unfortunately, they didn't have their freedom together very long because he only lived 18 months, just about 18 months mm. after he got his freedom. So on September 17th of 1858, he died of tuberculosis. But they had a year and a half. He was famous, very famous. He worked for the Barnum Hotel in St. Louis as a porter, and people would come to just um, see him and meet him to see the famous slave. You know, now when I'm looking at that story, and I, I realize the impact that it had on 
really galvanizing the nation, really galvanizing mm -hmm. the anti-slavery people when a decision was made that was mm -hmm. so bad, yeah. so wrong, nothing good in it at all, mm -hmm. that it, everything that Dredd and Harriet Scott did for 11 years trying to get their freedom, working so hard to get their freedom. You know what I know? I know they had to be praying people. Oh, they I were. know they had to be <laughs> leaning on God. Absolutely. And I can just see God's hand in this like I never could before, Lynn. That yeah. There's just one yeah. thing, another, another. And God himself will not allow this case to drop. No. When they think it's at an end, <laughs> oh, here's somebody else. No, we're taking this forward. Yeah, right, exactly. When they think it's yeah, at an yeah. end, yeah. their owner mm -hmm. presents herself mm -hmm. as an anti-slavery person and marries an abolitionist. Yeah. I Who does of, bring it into it. Yes, he did, actually, you see. And uh, I told this to Pastor Crazy. Johnson that when they signed their petitions to sue for freedom, they couldn't write so all slaves, most people know this, have to put an X mm -hmm. for their signature. And on papers that we have where they signed, their X was a cross. Ah. It was turned the other way so that it wasn't an X but a, a cross. And uh, a friend of mine, Mike Everman, who's our Secretary of State Archivist in St. Louis, we both were talking about that and taking serious note. He said he'd not seen that ever before. So I believe, like you, that they went into it, you know, believing and trusting that, you know, God's will be done. But his will was done. It didn't make me feel like it for 11 years. Right. But, you know, and people not like, as they expected it to oh, be. Oh, not at all. It never is the way we think it's going to go. But um, people like Frederick Douglass and, and many others, I have a list, they all predicted that this would end in a bloody war. Mm -hmm. They predicted it. But then also it was said that, you know, and I think even Abraham Lincoln alluded to it in his second inaugural speech, you know, that for every drop of blood that was spilt, it was in compensation for the blood of the slaves mm -hmm. who had spilt their blood, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, it was time to end all of that. And I personally feel like this 150th anniversary has brought us back to a recognition of the things that we have forgotten. And like you said, God won't let it go. He won't let it go. And so he's made so many miraculous things happen on my journey that you know it's him. And, and we're going to talk about some of those in a few minutes. Well, you know, too. just sitting here thinking, and, and I know that when, when God directs you to do mm -hmm. something, and you know you're going to have to do it. Yeah, you better. <laughs> That's, it's, it's better for it, you if you do, and yeah. it's a blessing if you do. Yeah. I'm thinking, you know, it might have just been God's idea in the first place when he told them, you guys need to file for your freedom. Mm -hmm. Who knows? I'm going to be with you, but That's you're going right. to do it. Yeah. And. Well, surely, again. Like, never knowing what it was going to do. No. Just Man, like I wish I could talk to Harriet <laughs> now. 
<laughs> well, oh, I know someone who talks to her all the time. It was a beautiful lady who wrote our family book on the story. She says, oh, I'm always talking to Harriet. But <laughs> you're right. And I wish I could even talk to my grandmother and one of my aunts, who I talk to all the time. But they didn't share anything particularly at all beyond what I, I knew, which was not much. And now that I know what I know about the family, I know how much they had to have known. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's just a lot. But let me tell you a couple of quick things. I said that Dred Scott died on September 17th, and he died on Constitution Day. How about that? Yeah. And so a lot of people know that John Adams and Thomas Jefferson died on the 4th of July. Right. On same the 50th day. anniversary, the same exact day, in 1826, hours apart, on the day that they signed the Emancipation, I'm sorry, uh, Declaration yeah. of uh, Independence. Mm-hmm. So God has a sense of humor, but he always marks things, too, for mm-hmm. us to take note of. Mm-hmm. But as far as the girls go, they were hidden away. And we always thought that the younger daughter was our great-grandmother, but in my research with the lady, Ruth Ann, uh, who was researching Harriet, we found out that it's the older daughter, not the younger daughter. And I won't spend a whole lot of time on that, but that was a real Mm eye-opener, primarily because genealogical records are available, and it was all there. We also found out that they had more children than we thought. We only thought they had two. One was my grandfather. And there could have been six. There were five at least. We found out that um, two of the babies that didn't live, one was buried with Harriet, one was buried with Dredd after the fact. So they opened their graves and interred grandchildren with them. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, just doing that research, just one thing leads to another. And that's why people are catching the bug today with Ancestry and 23andMe and all of that, because it's very fascinating. But in the end, we find out that we're really kind of like all one, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, Yeah. So, so... Harriet lives another 18 years. My great-grandmother, the older daughter, Eliza, who had the children, who we didn't think was our great-grandmother, died at the age of 44. That's pretty young. It was young. But, you know, people didn't live real long back then. But that was still kind of young. They were real young then. Yeah, Mm -hmm. still kind of young. But the second daughter, who was born weeks before they filed, she was born in 19, I'm sorry, 1846, and they filed in, I'm sorry, they filed in 1846, two months later, okay, March. Mm-hmm. So she dies in 1945 at the age of 99, two months shy of being 100. Wow. So I talk about what I know about her life, which I got from my Aunt Alma in Chicago, who is now 90 years old, the last of seven children that my grandparents had. My dad was the sixth, and he passed a few years ago. But Aunt Alma is the one that helped us with a little more that we've learned about that family, which my grandmother and my aunt that I mentioned never did share. I didn't know what to ask. So I'm just making a little commercial here. Talk to your family, elders, and, and find out what you can because it's shocking. Uh, I've made so many other connections of people who are known today or their ancestors were also known that nobody has a clue that these people are connected to Dred Scott's story. And until I get the okay, I can't really get into who they are. Mm-hmm. But 
It's fascinating. And so, um, so the family uh, went on to live free. And Dred Scott was buried in West End Cemetery, which in St. Louis is at Grand and Laclede, where St. Louis University is. And you don't know where Grand and Laclede is, but people have heard of St. Louis University. And uh, they were going to, I guess, abandon that cemetery. So who rides to the rescue again? But Taylor Blow. And although he not shortly thereafter himself filed bankruptcy, he still had Dredd moved to Calvary Cemetery, which is an exceptionally beautiful, astounding Catholic cemetery. But three graves, because he couldn't bury a black next to a white, so that Dredd could be in the center grave, and spent money to have him buried in a cemetery that will last till the Lord comes, I'm sure. And Dred Scott is now buried in a very prominent place not a big place and it's not a big marker and I hope that you know we can actually enhance that space mm -hmm. because Harriet now has a marker where we found her but she hers is, is larger and it's newer and nicer but the people who did this it was Taylor Blow's granddaughter that bought the headstone for him at Calvary Wow and I now work with the Le bourgeois family who are descendants along with the the gentleman I told you Jeff that I got the uh, genealogies from, mm -hmm. but the Le Bourgeois family lives here, and they are part of a group that I call Dred Scott Presents Sons and Daughters of Reconciliation. So the Dred Scott owners family, Dred Scott family, Thomas Jefferson, Jefferson Davis, Martin Luther King, we've got several families, many more actually, but we all work together and do presentations together and share reconciliation together. Because the mandate for the Dred Scott Heritage Foundation was commemoration, education, and reconciliation. I didn't know what the third one was supposed to be or look like, but I waited and he showed me. And it's been amazing. We'll talk a little bit more about that too, but I'm working with those families. So all along from the very beginning, I thought if I can get the sons and daughters group together, It'd be awesome if I could find the Chief Justice's family who read that decision. And I have. Oh, you're kidding. But they found me. That's even better. It's even better because I was thinking clearly they would take a good long while to warm up to them or them warm up to me and you know, get them to see the vision and all of that. And I got an email from a young lady and she wrote a play about our family's meeting in modern day times over coffee and invited me to come see the play in New York. And so the Tawny family and the Scott family met because of a play about us meeting. Wow. And it actually happened. Did it happen like the play? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, the play is two gentlemen. And, you know, they have this awesome conversation. It was a 20-minute short play, which is being expanded right now. However, it was powerful and respectful and deep and real. And at the time, she's this 31-year-old gorgeous, really pretty girl, Kate Tawney Billingsley, and her dad, Charlie Tawney. And I met them. Um, they picked me up. We got to meet each other. And it, you could just see 
that these people were sincere. I mean, if they're going to reach out to me, that that battle was already won. That's won. right. It was already won, you know. And so um, we we of course you know had chats and talks, and they said that every year their family would talk about the decision. Should we apologize? Yeah, maybe we should. No, I don't think we need to. And on and on and on it went until she said one year, I got tired of hearing that. Let's do something. And she wrote the play. And the play is doing very well in terms of a lot of, it was in the New York Times when we did it. But it's been uh, performed here. Well, I'm not in St. Louis. Where am I? I'm in Texas. <laughs> I'm sorry. I get around. Yeah, it's been performed in St. Louis. It's been performed in um, D.C. and Baltimore and just around. But she's she's expanding it a little bit it was a sharp play but it was so meaningful and it just meant so much and so her dad okay. is working with our foundation as well by the way i I'm, want you to tell more about what your foundation does and mm -hmm. and whatnot but on that note where the the descendants of the chief justice who read this horrendous decision mm -hmm. His descendants reach out to you to apologize. And it means something to you. Mm -hmm. It means something to you. Mm -hmm. It's been, what, 150 years? And it means something to you? Yeah. See, this is what people have to understand. Mm -hmm. um, on the white side of the street, we didn't suffer the things. Right that happened on the other side of the street. And we've got to have some compassion for not only what happened, mm -hmm. but compassion for, and a real wake up call, Lynn. It's a wake up call, especially to the yeah. church, to go, you know what, <laughs> church, yeah. we really dropped the ball. We really mm -hmm. dropped the ball on this mm -hmm. because so many things in history have been hidden yeah. and it's had a devastating effect on the black community and we can still see the effects that it's having when it comes to the oh, inner yeah. cities, Absolutely. the education, the anger. There's still anger. Yes, you there know, is. Sometimes people are just angry yeah. because nobody said they're sorry. That's right. And you know what? It's a good point to segue to for a minute. Um, my story has a lot of angles, twists and turns, like it you sure said. It sure does. And I actually gave a talk with the lady who did the genealogy, and we called it Turning Points, the Dred Scott case. And she did it on the genealogy side, and I did it on the, on the history side. And it was really awesome. We, we only did that once. But it does kind of drive, drives you mad because you hear something so heartwarming and wonderful and then you hear something so horrible it's like well what is it and um and and nothing you said the effects today you know people don't realize there's something that has been coined by uh, dr joy DeGruy. post-traumatic slave syndrome i don't know if you've heard of that i hadn't heard of it but it makes sense and yeah but you know and when it first came out a lot of even black people were going what what is that what does that mean you know but now, you know, it's been out a while, and I think people have caught on to the syndrome thing. But, yeah. And so there are a lot of things that happen today because of what happened then and because of what hasn't happened since then. Exactly. Okay. So Monday, I was with uh, Dr. Christy Griffiths, who 
heads up the ethics project that she started. She's an attorney, and she is uh, working to keep young people out of the pipeline to prison track and has written incarcerations in black and white where um, people don't know this, but they say that the prison uh, is a industrial complex and prisoners are traded on the stock exchange. So who all is in prison and why can't you get parole and did you get life? Uh, it's, it's very complex, but we have a youth summit and we try to get young people to learn about the legends and I represent Dred Scott. We, we talk about the past. And these young people asked us questions the other day that were just really riveting. I was happy. I was surprised and happy because they weren't pablum questions. They were deep questions. And, uh, and they got real answers back. You know, we had a panel of judges that talked to them. We had our new prosecuting attorney who's African-American that talked to them for the first time. And, um, and, and, and it was a wonderful day. But because they don't know the history, and maybe, let's say, some of them might be angry. They don't know. They don't even know why they're angry. They mm -hmm. just know things aren't right. Mm -hmm. But this kind of history and other people's histories, you know, when you talk about Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemming, you know, I've got Thomas's descendants with his wife and his slave have been a part of our program before. So we have an African-American descendant of Thomas Jefferson on our panel. Um, we have Jefferson Davis, who's great-great-grandfather, um, he seceded from the, the nation, but a lot of people don't know he didn't want to be president. And his story is very fascinating. And when people get to hear his story, they go, what? Are you kidding? And as we've been saying all day, how come nobody told us, which is something my husband says a lot when we do ministry, we do biblical apologetics, and people go, how come nobody ever told us that? And so, yeah, people are perishing and languishing and angry and hurt for a lack of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, we just all need to sit down and get the truth in us. Mm -hmm. And then we can you know, move the pieces on the puzzle and, and get the right picture on the Are you the telling table. me Jefferson Davis didn't want to be the president of the Confederacy? He was drafted into that, yeah. Really? Yeah, he didn't say, I'm your president. No, he did not. And wow. there's more about him that, that's very fascinating as well. But that's a story for another day. But my point is, when we have our Sons and Daughters of Reconciliation panel, we get to talk about our ancestors mm -hmm. and crisscross our stories, and you start to get the real whole picture of who these people <laughs> were. You know, uh, Justice Taney, for instance, he had a distinguished career, and had he not ruled the way he did with Dred Scott and gone down that path, he might have been considered one of the better or among the best chief justices that we've had up to that point. You know, um, what you had said about uh, Jefferson Davis getting drafted into being the president, that's one of the things that David Barton said on his, his program that he really uh, stressed how it used to be if you wanted to be in office, mm -hmm. it's like, no. Mm -hmm. Because you had to be of a certain character. Right. You had to be a very good businessman, mm -hmm. this and mm -hmm. that. And the people, you didn't <laughs> run for anything. You didn't have signs going, vote for yeah. me. Yeah. It, the, the people, people chose to. you. Yeah. And if the people chose you to do it, you yeah. had to do it. Yeah. See, that's what happened with General Lee. He very well might have fought for the union, but 
and, and I believe he intended to, but he was a Virginian mm -hmm. and he could not fight against his home state in his heart. And of course he was asked to do that. So he made a decision, do I fight against my own house? Mm -hmm. But his story is also another very fascinating story. Mm -hmm. If you actually study the man of General Lee. He was a very godly man. He was, he was. And yet some people will find it hard to hear, well, you fought against slavery. He didn't really fight so much against slavery as he fought for his home. Mm -hmm. and, and these are the little things that people can't separate sometimes mm -hmm. when they just have that one way of seeing something. And we just all as a people, you know, no matter what race we are, we need to open our eyes and open our hearts and just let the cards be laid on the table and see where they are. You are going to find people who are evil, wicked, and bad. A lot of these people were horrible. I ran across a guy, and I wish I could think of his name. He was the devil incarnate. And nobody really talks about him. I'm going to. But he was <laughs> evil, 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 mm -hmm. evil. I didn't know he existed. And there's not too much I don't think anybody can say good about him. And I certainly wouldn't be trying. Okay. Uh, I try to find the good in people, but... Some people, I don't Some know. Some people, there is no good to find. No, thankfully, they're few and far between, mm -hmm. but yeah, they, they do really exist. Yeah. Okay, so I have a certain way that I feel when I see young students or groups of young vandals tearing down mm -hmm. a statue of anybody. I have a certain way that I feel about that. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about that? Well, clearly, we've had this conversation uh, with many people on many levels. As far as statues coming down, on the 160th anniversary of the Dred Scott decision, which was on March 6th of 2016, I stood in front of Chief Justice Roger B. Taney's statue with his great-great-grandson and his daughter and wife were there and other family members as he offered a public apology in front of cameras and newspaper reporters. And he offered a very humble, honest, sincere apology, which I accepted with forgiveness. It was in 200 newspapers around the country. The statue of his ancestor was right over our shoulder. And to me, to have that statue there in that picture was half of all of what we did because it was the past, the present, and the future mm -hmm. in that picture. Had it been taken down, it would not have been there. But it was taken down about three weeks after that. That's sad. Yeah. You know why, to me, it's sad? Mm -hmm. It's because, all right, these people have statues for a reason. Mm -hmm. And whether they did something good or mm -hmm. bad, mm -hmm. as we're seeing it now, right, right. You need to know who they are. Yeah. You need to know why it might have been considered okay at the time, mm -hmm. but it's not now. Mm -hmm. You know, you learn from history. You do. When I went to Philadelphia, we um, went there for a documentary that I'm in called 14, and um, it's about citizenship. And I walked around Constitution Hall and all of those places right there and saw statues I'd never seen before and looked at them and read them and went, oh, never heard of him, really? Who is that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I enjoyed it, but my point I wanna make is this. I don't think the statue should come down. Uh, and, and I think 
most of America feels that way. I really do because the people I'm talking to, other family members, people in education, um, it's a learning opportunity. Mm -hmm. And we even ask them to not take down the Tawny statue, although I do understand that it being where it is was problematic. And yet we proposed to them a plan to move it mm -hmm. and to add, in this case, someone suggested to add Dred Scott to that story. Thurgood Marshall is right around the corner from him. You have the attorney, the first um, black on the Supreme Court. You mm -hmm. have Dred Scott. You have So we, we provided alternatives to it just being taken down and, mm -hmm. and moved away. But it was, and that was a decision other people made. So, yeah, I think that it's definitely a possibility that we should be more educational about them. And if they're offensive to in the locations that they're in, to perhaps move them. Mm -hmm. But to remove them, I don't agree with that. I just don't. And I understand people being angry for whatever reason, but I think, it, again, that's a conversation that could be had where we mm -hmm. come together and reason together. Mm -hmm. and, and so, fortunately, it's kind of died down right now, but you know, they were down to the point of removing Grant, who won the Civil War. I know. You know what, I, I fell in love with General Grant. Um, He's a funny person. During <laughs> yeah. when when I found out that he was dedicated to helping Abraham Lincoln in slavery, mm -hmm. that's why he did what he did. He did. He, he's a colorful character, but oh he's, yeah. But listen, he's a president from St. Louis. We have the Grant Forums, and talk about not knowing history. When we were kids, we always went to Grant's Forum. It was a field trip. It was a family trip. It was a picnic. And as children, we didn't know he was president of the United States. Now, I'm not trying to slam anybody. I'm sure they didn't tell us. I love school. I would have remembered that. But over time, we, we associated Grant's Forum with President Grant. And we didn't even know. So there's a beautiful museum there <laughs> for him. And, and the whole thing about slavery is very prominent in there. When you walk in, you can see you know, what his position was there as well. So, um, yeah, there, there are a lot of... It's very important. I would recommend you look up Thaddeus Stevens. And another note real quick. Um, Sumner High School in St. Louis was the first black high school west of the Mississippi and is the oldest high school even wow. now west of the There's Mississippi. There's a lot of history in that town. Oh, yeah. Famous people went to that school. Tina Turner, Arthur Ashe, Dick Gregory, um, Grace Bumbry, an international opera singer. And, uh, they all and many more came from that school. However, it's named after a white senator, Charles Sumner. Why? Because he spoke so ferociously against slavery on the Senate floor that he was beat down with a cane by another senator, Preston Brooks, so badly that I think he was gone at least a year and he never fully recovered. Mm -hmm. But he did come back, and yet he was almost killed on the floor of the Senate by someone who was enraged by him saying that we should not have slavery. Mm -hmm. The school is named after this white abolitionist congressman, but most people did not know that who went to that high school. Mm -hmm. And even I, as a child, just assumed Charles Sumner must be a black man, you know. And it's okay that he's a white man, but it's good to know that and to know why. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think when we start sharing true stories like that, we don't need to embellish them. We don't need to make them up. 
just need to tell the truth mm -hmm. and share what's already out there for us to know, then I think, and I've seen people change. I have seen people change. I've seen people say, I don't know if I want to talk to those people. And before the day was over, they were in tears, enamored with the stories and the life and the spirit of the people that they didn't know they wanted to see. The deal that you said you were at Monday. The National Youth Summit mm -hmm. in St. Louis. And you had a Q&A there and they get to throw out questions and then the panel kind of answers the questions. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Right. The judges answered questions. Everybody did. Of all the questions that were asked that day, Mm -hmm. which one to you really stood out and you were like, wow. Mm. Wow, that's a good question. And I took notes, I don't have them with me because I, like, I take notes all the time, so I remember these things. Mm -hmm. But um, let me do this. I, I don't remember a question that stood out, but I do remember a comment. Okay. And it's a very short statement. And one young lady said, parents should support their kids. This came from a high school student. Parents should support their kids. And that can be understood in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. Believe them, understand them, be there for them. And being there was an issue that came up. Tell them the truth. That's right. Take That's one them of the to best church. ways to support your kids. Take them to church, to read the Bible with them. Mm -hmm. There's so many ways that parents can support their kids, but that to me was profound. It wasn't a question this time, it was a statement. Hmm. But that's the one I remember the most because probably you know the preceding conversation and everything, but what came out of it was this young girl's heart that we need our parents to be there for us and help us. And that is so true. I don't really fault young people for what they don't know or even sometimes how they act. If you think about if you were born in 2011, or 1999, like, you know, when music changed and when clothes changed. And if that's all you knew, and if you never went more than 20 blocks from your house, that's your world. Mm -hmm. People are profane of the mouth because they hear it and they don't know it's not bad. I heard a lady the other day say at 35 years old, she had not heard of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. except to know that it's Easter, and I heard his name, but I didn't know anything about the resurrection. This lady today is a pastor. Had a very difficult past. But at 35, she, and this was just last week, said, I don't even know, didn't know who he was. Mm -hmm. There's so a lot assume, of people in this country who do not know. We assume that people are better off than they are, which is why we're supposed to go out. And well, you, you really have to realize that everybody perceives everything through what they've been taught mm -hmm. and what they've experienced. That's right. And through their own lenses. That's right. You know, I do that with, um, when I mediate, um, and, I, and I had many opportunities to do that as a manager on my jobs, but people will say something and I can catch in midair that the person they're talking to did not receive the message that they sent. Mm -hmm. And many times, um, I just hold on a second. She said, or she meant, and, and immediately, most of the time they say, yeah, that's what I thought she was gonna say, that's what I thought she meant. We just are processing through our own life's lens. And through our 
own cultures. I, I know our life's lens. I know mm-hmm. that that is one of the the bridges that that has to be mm-hmm. crossed now yeah. between the cultures mm-hmm. because I can say something you might not necessarily right. hear what I'm saying to you, yeah. and. I have found that out on a personal oh, level. Sure. It was, it was crazy. It. Of course it was. Something I never expected. What happens too is a person's definition of the word that you use is not your definition. That's right. You see, so it really all comes down to communication. Mm-hmm. You know, how are we communicating and what are we communicating? You know, so there's okay. work to be done there. I want you to share a little bit about what the Dred Scott Foundation does. What do you do? <laughs> wow. Because I know you go and you speak and yeah. you, you do all kinds of things. And how can people get involved with you? Some of the initiatives that you've got going on, like mm. a Dred Scott stamp and, yeah. you know, different things. Right. Okay. Thank you. Um, so we haven't talked that much about it at all on this no, show, right? No, we haven't. Okay. <laughs> See, she's confused because she recorded for two hours with Dr. Johnson today. Oh, there you go. And she's tired. <laughs> well, this does actually invigorate me, even when I'm tired. But uh, first of all, I should tell your audience that there was no statue of Dred Scott anywhere in the world. And the Dred Scott Heritage Foundation, aside from deciding we needed to be there for the anniversary, really found out that there wasn't a statue and wanted to fix that. So we raised $250,000 for a statue of Dredd and Harriet, and it stands in front of the old courthouse now. So that alone is a legacy of the foundation that could, if we didn't do anything else, it, it is a life of its own. It's doing mm-hmm. such good work being that presence is there. And so, um, so that was wonderful. And right now, Dred Scott in a commemorative mode, we also regret the fact that there is no stamp of Dred Scott. Mm-hmm. Even Bugs Bunny has his own stamp. Give me a break. I pick on Bart Simpson all the time. <laughs> the Simpsons have a stamp. And, you know, everybody has one. We won't pick on people, but I will pick on Bart. And yet, why not? So, That's right. we have initiated a Dred Scott stamp campaign. And simply put, we have petitions on our website, and they can be easily downloaded and printed out. We're asking people to do that and get them signed, filled out, and just mail them to the address at the bottom. We need 100,000 or more. You're not asking signatures. for money for that one. You're no asking money. for signatures. Just signatures. And maybe some time for some people who have some time. Exactly. To get signatures filled on the form. Right, yeah. right, right. Um, I have a cousin who uh, really surprised me. Uh, he sent me eight pages. And I didn't think he would send but two. And uh, so if, if my cousin can send eight, you know, we can, we can do all kinds of things. But on the other hand, I have a, a lady who signed up to do this and within two weeks she had about 300 signatures wow yeah and but she uh has she's on our committee and she has a suggestion that if we could get a thousand people to get a hundred signatures or a hundred people to get a thousand signatures that would be nice Mm -hmm. and so we're going to be looking at what we can do to thank people that do the thousand signatures but um really right now anything would help and so um, they can go to dreadscottlives.org, dreadscottlives.org, and right in the right-hand corner, they'll see stamps. Now, the stamp, let me be clear, is a rendition 
a design rendition. There is no stamp. When you look at it, it's going to look like a beautiful stamp, mm -hmm. but it's just the concept. Mm -hmm. So please don't think we already have one, <laughs> but I do have them in postcards, and those postcards are available for people to purchase, you know, just as a publicity piece. Mm -hmm. And yet uh, we, we feel that that should happen. Now, the other thing about the stamp is that we're hoping to have it be our signature program for next year, 400th anniversary of the beginning of slavery in the United States is in 2019. Okay. 400 year anniversary of when slavery began. Yes. In stateside. 1619 in Virginia. Mm -hmm. August. And I believe we August need to do 20th. something big. Well, things are happening. <laughs> I'm going to be in four programs already and the year isn't even over. So I don't know what else is on the horizon, but the stamp campaign is ours because we've already started it. We want to push it. And wouldn't it be awesome to get that stamp on the 400th anniversary wouldn't year? It? You know, so the powers that be, uh, if you hear this, please don't even wait for our signatures. Just <laughs> do the stamp. And it's not the post office, by the way, too. It's, I don't want people to write to the post office, but just send it to us and we'll, we'll get it to the right people. But that's one program. And then I'm happy to announce that the... Um, group, which is also another type of sons and daughters, but um, we are descendants of slaves who wrote their own slave narratives. And we go under the name Inspire and Inspired by Courage. That's going to be a 400 initiative. And uh, that came out of me being with this group of descendants of people who wrote their own biographies. And University of Buffalo under the direction and inspiration of Dr. Kari Winter, had us come up there about three years ago and share our stories and how people found their, their ancestors. Most of these people didn't know most of their lives that they had an ancestor who wrote a slave narrative. Wow. These books have been published and they've been out there and these people are living their lives not even knowing that these were their ancestors. So Now that's just sad. It is, but it's happy now because it's a wonderful group of people and so we're right now making plans for the um, 400th anniversary that our group is going to participate in. As probably for me, it's going to be like the fifth thing that we do. So that's another 400th anniversary project. Now, also, because we had the unfortunate incident of Michael Brown's death in St. Louis, Ferguson um, had a lot of problems, but a lot of hope. And there were a lot of ministries that ministered in that area. I worked with several of them. And out of that came the Ferguson Declaration for pastors to repent of whatever they didn't do that might have helped make their neighborhood and their congregation and their city better. And that traveled. It traveled in the way that uh, Bishop Harry Jackson and Pastor Mike Berry have done what we did in St. Louis under the title The Reconciled Church. And so The Reconciled Church is looking to do a 400th anniversary group. And in the events that we did before, we were here in Dallas for one, and we were at T.D. Jakes' church, and we had a lot of prominent individuals participate. So this was something that we wanted to do. Reconciled Church is about repentance in the church. And so, um, and hopefully in next year, toward the latter half of the year, the Reconciled Church will have an anniversary program as well. But 
I'm not in charge. I just <laughs> will participate, and I'm excited to the plans that, that I've heard that what they might do. So, what is the goal of what are they to be repentant of? Is there a certain thing when you say they? Well, the, the reconciled church. Oh, that's what, a, that's what? all all of us. <laughs> that's all of us. But in particular, it's the leaders who are repenting for being showmen, for not oh teaching goodness. the whole counsel of God. Oh my goodness. For not, you know, being godly men, for having failed in their own ways, perhaps. For anything that did not feed the sheep, but caused the sheep perhaps to go astray to where our society is the way it is today. Okay, you little prayer warriors out there in GLC <laughs> land, be praying for that. Yeah. For sure, for sure. Absolutely. That, that the reconciled church. That that really does happen because we need that to happen with our pastors. Yeah. There's always that yeah. trickle down effect. That's right. With what's right. ever going on with them. Yeah. We need them to be minute men. That's right. <laughs> on the ready. That's right. <laughs> we, we do. do. Yeah, it's, it's serious, but it's been it's been phenomenal when it's happened. You know, um, and I've been blessed to be a part of it. Yeah. It's so. you know, in this day and age, um, to be a godly leader. And it doesn't matter if you're in the church or if right. you're in politics or if you're in the grocery store. That's right. It doesn't make any difference. You need people praying yeah. for you. That's you true. need people encouraging you. Right. You know, front lines is front lines. I'm sorry. Frontline warriors. That's, that's who right. we are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, one more answer to your question about Dred Scott. Um, we have young friends of Dred Scott. We're teaching, we're having reconciliation events. We have the sons and daughters who just spoke for the National Judicial College in St. Louis, which was amazing. They trained judges all over the country and they had us do their morning session on unconscious bias in the court. Wow. And so uh, we're doing a lot of things, but we would like very much to one day have our own building and we're praying toward that and crawling toward that. So I'd ask people to pray for us for that so we could have the Dred Scott Education and Reconciliation Learning Center Museum. We have less than two minutes and I'm wondering, mm -hmm. uh, I wanna tell people that, okay, the Dred Scott decision happened in 1857. Mm -hmm. Then we had the Civil War and then we had the 13th, 14th and 15th amendments. And we had to, to have them all tied together because the 13th yeah. ended slavery. Abolished slavery. The 14th gave citizenship to everyone born here or naturalized here, specifically for the slaves in response to the Dred Scott decision. And the 15th gave the black man the vote. That's right. Mm -hmm. And they consider those all... Uh, Reconstruction amendments. That's right. Um, yeah, Dred Scott amendments. All, mm -hmm. all tied to the Civil War. Right. So... You know what? I just want to say thank you. Thank you, Lynn, for your courage. Thank you for your compassion for America to take your life and get out there and, and really help people understand the incredible importance of what your ancestors did for this nation in in doing what I know God told them to do and bearing up and thank you Amy it's my privilege and it's a great honor to be here and to represent them I'm a messenger 
and I'm happy to do that. Well, you are Thank a you. blessing. You're a blessing to DLC. You're a blessing to America. And we well, God love bless you. you. And thank you, Alice Patterson, wherever yes, you are. I wouldn't be here without yes, her today. I guarantee you she'll be watching this. I'll send her a copy. <laughs> okay, thank you. Bless you, God bless, bless you. you. Thank you for joining us today. I hope that you learned as much as I did, because it was a lot. This program is brought to you exclusively by the love, gifts, and offerings of our faithful partners. Thank you, partners.